Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 38 is where we're going to be tonight. <clears throat> Starting in verse 27, it says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Now as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Matthew is definitely giving us short glimpses of, seg of segments of Jesus' ministry. You see how they're all very, very brief. And if you remember from our study of Matthew so far, whenever we've compared Matthew's accounts of certain events with Mark and Luke, Mark and Luke have had a lot more detail. Matthew's been a little more concise. Of course, Matthew would bring out some things that they wouldn't bring out as well. But I want you to understand that Matthew has a purpose in just giving us segments of Jesus' life and ministry. Does anybody know what his purpose is? And if you don't remember, that's okay, because it goes all the way back to our very first study of Matthew. He's speaking to the Jews. Go to Matthew chapter 1 and look at verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you remember, we did this study at the beginning of how Matthew's purpose is to reveal to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Greek term for the Messiah. But he's also the son of David. And we're going to bring that out in just a little bit here in our study. But he wants his Jewish hearers to know that Jesus is the one that was prophesied, the Messiah that is to come, and that he is the promised one who is going to be coming from David to be the king in Israel. Now, <clears throat> turn over with me to John chapter 20. And I'm going to show you that John as well um, has purposes for his writing. And it's going to be very similar to Matthew's purposes. And Mark, John didn't write to Jews. John wrote to Greeks, so those who weren't Jewish. That's why if you study John's gospel, you'll notice that he'll call certain areas uh, by their non-Jewish name, like he'll call the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias uh, and things like that. Also, though, he'll explain Jewish customs because his hearers, his audience was not Jewish, but mostly Gentile. But in John chapter 20, look at verses 30 and 31. It said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his, the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here John even says, look, I'm not writing down everything Jesus did. And you need to understand, Matthew's not writing down everything that Jesus did. He's just giving us glimpses and segments of it. Actually, turn over to chapter 21 of John and look at verse 25. <clears throat> we might even be glad that they didn't write down everything Jesus did. Look at John 21, verse 25. It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So, 
keep in mind that as we study the book of Matthew here in the Gospel of Matthew and we see these segments, don't get frustrated with the fact that he's just given us a little tidbit here and a little tidbit there. It's been written through the Holy Spirit for the purpose of us coming to understand that Jesus is the promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David, as we're going to get to in just a second. But at the same time, he's not going to give us every aspect of everything Jesus did. I'm also going to warn you and caution you about reading online or in places where people talk about hypothetically stories that Jesus did, things he did when he was a child and all this kind of stuff. There's lots of stories out there of the miracles that Jesus did before he made his ministry public. Only believe what's written here. Anything beyond that, you can't believe it to be true. And there are too many stories about how Jesus came across a dead bird and brought it back to life when he was like nine years old or something like that. There's, there's wacko stories out there that have unfortunately in people's minds become real. Let the scripture be what it is that you, you base your belief from. <clears throat> now, go back to Matthew 9 and look at verse 27. If Matthew's purpose, remember, is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, <clears throat> and the son of David, look at what these two blind men say. By the way, you're waiting for me to read to you the account in Mark and Luke, aren't you? But there is none. You're going to find out later on that Mark and Luke talk about this blind man Bartimaeus in a similar situation, but it's not the exact same story. It's in a different place at a different time. <clears throat> Matthew's the only one that brings out this story. Of, of this situation. But in Matthew 9, 27, these two blind men, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us. And what do they call him? Son of David. It wasn't an accident that they called him son of David. And when they say have mercy on us, that was a very common way to say, heal me, help me with my situation, have mercy on me. <clears throat> now, at the same time, the fact that they called him son of David shows that they believed he was the promised one that was to come. And what we're going to do is just do a little quick study of some of the Old Testament prophecies about the son of David. Now, I'm going to set, up, set this all up by saying, as you're going to see hopefully tonight, there's such a thing called progressive revelation. And progressive revelation is when God reveals something to us, but then a little later on gives us another piece of the puzzle, and a little later on another piece of the puzzle. It's called progressive revelation. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to Adam and Eve that a seed of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan. So now we know a descendant of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan at some time, but we don't know who it is. Later on, you get a little bit more of a glimpse, a little bit more of a glimpse, and a little more, more of a glimpse. And of course, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, we know who it is. Progressive revelation is all through the scripture. I'm going to show you some progressive revelation about this son of David thing. We'll start in 2 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> now, to set this stage, David has just said, I want to build God a temple. Here I am living in a paneled house. And the ark's living in a tent because, you know, as you know, the, the, the tabernacle at that time was still made out of tent. And he wants to build God a house. And actually, the Nathan, the prophet says, hey, whatever's in your heart, go ahead and do it. And then God says to Nathan, the prophet that night, hey, whoa, 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 there, hey, pro prophet guy. I didn't say that you could tell him that. You have to go back and tell him that he's not the one I chose. And so. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, look at verse 8. God speaking through Nathan to David. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, David, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemy enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know because of progressive revelation and us being where we are that this is pointing to Jesus. And I'm going to lay that out for you in just a little bit. But let me ask you a quick question. God promised David that there would be a period of time in which God was going to take his people, the people of Israel, and he was going to put them in their place where they would never be bothered ever again. Violent men would oppress them no more and that this king would set up his kingdom and rule and reign forever. Has this happened yet? No. That's why I really want you to hopefully hear and understand the importance of believing in the millennial kingdom, the reign of Christ. Unfortunately, so many Christians have been taught that there's this all-millennial view, that the, the prophecies about the millennial kingdom are more spiritual. They're not literal. But God said, I'm going to take them and put them in the land, and at that point, they will never be bothered again. But as we know, that hasn't happened all through their history. And it's still coming and God has to keep his word or else he's not God and he's going to. And Jesus will come back and rule and reign on this earth just like the prophecies say. But at this point, David is told a son from your own body, someone from your lineage is going to become the king over Israel. And I'm going to set up his kingdom forever. By the way, put yourself in the mindset of the Jews right now. They've been shown this prophecy and that when this descendant of David comes, what's life going to be like for the Jews? It's going to be great. They're going to be in the land. No one's going to bother them again. And it's going to be great. So now you understand why they've been looking for this coming Messiah. We'll go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Look at verses five and six. Jeremiah chapter 23. Look at verses five and six. <clears throat> God speaking through the prophet De Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. By the way, is that word branch capitalized in your Bible? Yes, yes it is. And rightfully so. For David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Progressive revelation. We get a little bit more of the picture. Now we see that his name is going to become called the Lord is our righteousness. You know Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, but unto us a child is, a son is born and a child is given, and the government is on his shoulders, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So we know that the prophecies have been saying that this descendant of David is going to come, and he's going to rule and reign, and now we see a picture that he's going to be the Lord of Righteousness. And when he rules and reigns, this descendant of David, this branch that comes from David, Israel's going to dwell securely. Again, the Jews are starting to salivate. This looks pretty good. 
We're looking for this guy. Now, Jeremiah and Isaiah had similar time periods of their ministries. Isaiah's ministry started a little earlier than Jeremiah's, and Jeremiah's lasted after, after Isaiah's, but they overlapped a little bit. They had similar time periods of their ministries of prophecy. And I think what I'm about to show you in Isaiah chapter 11, go to Isaiah 11. I think this prophecy happened prior to the one we just got in Jeremiah, but if not, they're very, very close together in when God gave them. But go to Isaiah chapter 11. Remember, we just saw in Jeremiah 23 that the days are coming when God's going to raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and so on. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Does anybody know who Jesse is? That's David's father. Remember, Samuel was sent to go anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the king of Israel to replace Saul. And so that, that shoot coming from the stump of Jesse is going to be David. And a what is going to come from his roots? A branch. There you see it again. The branch shall bear fruit. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this person, this branch's delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Again, more progressive revelation and seeing that this guy is going to have. Actually, if you were to go back and take a look at it and I can show it to you real quick. Do you ever notice in Revelation chapter five, we hear about the seven spirits of God that are before the throne? People have always said, what are the seven spirits of God? Well, it's right here. It's been always goes back to Isaiah 11. Uh, this this going to have the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. One, the spirit of wisdom. Two, the spirit of understanding. Three, the spirit of counsel. Four, the spirit of might. Five, spirit of knowledge. Six, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven, the seven spirits of God that we see in Revelation chapter five. Now go to Luke chapter one. And we'll look at some more progressive revelation. Again, the nation of Israel has been waiting and waiting and waiting at this point in history. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. The nation of Israel has been waiting for this promised descendant of David. As you know, they were removed from the land, Babylonian captivity. Then they go back into the land for a little while. But as you know, at this point, before Jesus comes on the scene, they've been through all the mess that they've been dealing with with the Romans and all this and in Luke chapter 1, look at verses 30 through 33. The angel says to Mary, angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Don't miss this. So many people think that when the angel comes and tells Mary this, that that's the first time that it was said. But now that you've studied the Old Testament a little bit, you realize all the angel is saying is what? 
word for word what God had said to David in 2 Samuel 7, to Jeremiah in chapter 23, to Isaiah in chapter 11. All of those prophecies are now being made clear. Folks, that's why I want you to study the book of Revelation. Know what it says. And if you've done the studies with us, you'll know that most of the book of Revelation actually was already all written in the Old Testament. It's not a new book. It's not apocalyptic writing. It's prophecy. And actually over three quarters of the book of Revelation had already been written in the Old Testament. All Revelation does is put it together for us in an order. When the angel comes and says, your child that was within you, that you, you know you didn't make, is going to be a child of God. He's going to be the son of the Most High. And I'm going to give, God's going to give to him the throne of his father David, the prophecy, and his kingdom will have no end and he'll rule forever and ever. All they was doing was just saying, this is the one that was prophesied. Progressive revelation. But now, just because she has this, do the rest of the Jews have this understanding? Were they there when Mary said it? Or was told to Mary? No, they weren't. Go to John chapter 7, and you'll see that they start to wrestle with this issue. In John chapter 7, look at verses 40 through 43. Jesus has been speaking, and when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. By the way, I haven't even taken you through that study. But if you go back and look, there was actually another prophecy where God told Moses, I'm going to raise up for you, for the people of Israel, a prophet just like you, Moses. And he's going to be, and there was progressive revelation about this prophet that was going to come like Moses. And so some people are saying, is this the prophet? And by the way, the prophet was also pointing to Jesus. Is this the prophet? Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a great division among the people over him. I didn't even take you to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where the prophecy said that the king was going to be coming from Bethlehem. And so, folks, what I want you to see is the people are now wrestling with the fact that they've been looking for this coming one. They've been looking all through the, through the history of the nation of Israel. for the. That's why when John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he's not afraid of anybody and he's powerfully preaching and all these people are flocking, they actually come to him and say, are you the Christ? Are you the one? Are you the prophet? And he had to say, no, I'm just telling you the one preparing the way for that guy. Remember how Isaiah said there was going to be one prepared the, prepared the way? That's me. That's my job. So when Jesus comes on the scene now and, and he's doing these miracles and people are starting to get really interested, they're going, is this the guy? Is this the prophet? Is this the Christ? They, they didn't understand that they were the same person. Some thought well, they might be different prophecies, but it's the same guy. But they were divided over him. They weren't sure. Go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 29 through 36 at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He just showed them in the verses prior to where we're going to start in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2. He's just shown them in the verses prior that the prophecy that David gave about how God wouldn't let his holy one abandon his soul to Hades or let his holy one see corruption. They were saying it can't be talking about David. And here's why. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Stop. Where did God make that prophecy? Where did God make that oath and that promise to David? 
2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember, God comes and promised him. All right. And then knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, all, of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you have yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself in the book of Psalms says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The sermon that Peter preached under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you go back, was to take the nation of Israel through their history and to point to them that all the prophecies about this coming one were pointing to Jesus. And you killed him. But don't get too upset because that was all prophesied as well. And if you'll turn from your sin and ask him to forgive you, his purposes will be accomplished and you can receive him as the king. Progressive revelation is so important. I cannot stress to you enough the importance of really studying the Old Testament, folks. Do you see how the New Testament makes so much more sense when you actually know the Old Testament prophecies and you don't try to build your theology from just reading the New Testament? But you, as you read it, you'll go, oh, that was talked about there. That was talked about there. Have you ever noticed how most of the New Testament actually is just quotes from the Old Testament? How the book of Hebrews is pretty much quoting the Old Testament. How the book of Romans is just quoting the Old Testament. And we, but the church today, unfortunately, is trying to build their, their theology and their doctrine about the end times and what's to still come by just trying to read the New Testament and figure it out from there. Folks, listen to me. If we needed the Old Testament prophecies to prepare us for the coming of Christ in its first time, there are actually three times as many prophecies about the second coming of Christ than there were the first coming of Christ. And if you don't know the Old Testament, you won't understand what's happening in our day and what's going on. And you'll try to figure it out by symbolic and spiritualness. No, go read the Old Testament. Go study the Old Testament. And as God begins to open your eyes to it, as we live in these days that the prophecies are being fulfilled, all of a sudden you'll go, I get it now. That was what was being talked about there. This just happened. Like, for example, you know, it wasn't but 10 years ago that Turkey went from being an ally of Israel to an enemy. Those of us who have studied the Old Testament, when that happened, went, that lines up with the prophecies. Because all along the Old Testament prophecies, it said that Turkey would be one of the enemies of Israel in the last days and attack Israel. Yet most of us would look at it before 10 years ago and say, but Turkey's an ally. But then all of a sudden, it switched. And those of us who knew the Old Testament say, this is now lining up with what the Scripture says. Study the Old Testament. Now, the two blind men called him son of David. They were saying they believed he was the promised one. Oh, and when he asked them the question, do you believe I'm able to do this? What do they say? Yes, yes what? Yes. yes, Lord. Don't miss that. His name's going to be the Lord is our righteousness. Paul, Peter says, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this one whom you crucified. They believed. 
So he enters the house he was going to. The blind men come in and approach Jesus for the healing of their sight. They asked him, then Jesus asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes. Jesus' response was, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, before we go any further, because I'm going to ask you an interesting theological question about Jesus' asking and their answer. But before we get to that, I want to remind you that what we studied earlier, that sometimes God heals in response to our faith, and sometimes God heals when there's no faith. And I share this with you because there are too many people out there today, they're going to take this passage in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus says, according to your faith, may it be done to you. And they try to teach that if you have enough faith, you can be healed. It's tied to how much faith you have, because isn't that what it says? According to your faith, may it be done to you. And they take a verse and try to teach a doctrine that doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture. And they teach that if you have enough faith, then you will be healed. If you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, let me just remind you real quickly. Go back to Matthew chapter 8. Look at verse 13. That there are times that God heals in response to faith. Matthew chapter 8, verse 13 it says, in this, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Tied to his faith, the servant was healed. Go to Matthew chapter 9, look at verses 1 and following. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, actually, the group of people's faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So here we see another healing tied to their faith. Go to Matthew 15, look at verse 28. Then Jesus answers her, this woman, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now again, if I wanted to, I could walk you through these verses I just showed you tied to Matthew chapter 9, here verse 29, and try to convince you that it's tied to your faith. The problem is I wouldn't be using the whole Bible. That's why I've been saying you can hear me say this over and over till God takes me home or he takes us all home. Don't build your doctrine from a verse here or a verse there, but from the whole of Scripture. I'm going to show you two examples in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke where God healed and it had nothing to do with faith. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Look at verses 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. There's no faith involved here. He just saw that she was sick. He went over and touched her. She was healed and she got up and served. By the way, somebody last night said, Lord just did that because he was hungry and he wanted someone to get up and make him dinner. <laughs> I knew better than to go down that road. But I can tell you this much. When I was a kid, and I'm one of five kids, when mama got sick, the house shut down. I remember as a kid being scared when my mom was sick enough that she couldn't get out of bed thinking, we're never going to eat again, you know. But go to Luke chapter 22. Go to Luke 22. Look at verses 47 through 51. This is Jesus' arrest in the garden right before the cross. In verse 47 of Luke 22, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd 
And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Did he heal this man because he had faith that God was going to heal him? Actually, this guy probably had no faith because he's part of the crowd coming to arrest him. But Jesus healed him. So don't let anybody tell you that your faith is tied to your healing completely. Sometimes God's wanting us to exercise faith. Sometimes God's waiting for us to ask. But at the same time, sometimes God says no. Even when we believe. I could take you through that study, but we've already done it. I'm just reminding you because of that fact that that verse that we saw there in Matthew chapter 9, verse 29, is used so many times by false teachers to teach that you are only sick because you don't have enough faith. I don't want you to go down that road or to be susceptible to that. That way you'll no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every cunning and deceitful scheme of men and every kind of false teaching. Know what the scripture says. But I'm going to ask you a question. Did Jesus already know or not know that they believed he was able to heal them when he asked them, do you believe I'm able to do this? Very good. He knew. Then why does he ask them? That's a part of it so that they'll speak up. Listen to me. Part of what's going on is God is trying to get us to verbally acknowledge what we believe. In the garden, says to Adam and Eve, where are you? Did he not know? Of course he knew, but he was wanting them to acknowledge we hid. Well, why did you hide? Well, we were naked and we were afraid. Well, who told you you were naked? Again, all questions that God knew the answer to, but he's trying to get us to confess. That's why the Bible is very important for us to just be willing to acknowledge it. How many of you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, have been mad at God, but I would never say it? I think he knows. <laughs> I think he knows. Sometimes it helps for us to say, Lord, I'm, I, I got to be honest, I'm having some problems with you right now. And he goes, wow, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> it actually helps us to confess it. It helps us to acknowledge and agree with him. But there's a deeper issue. It's not just getting them to publicly confess their faith. It's for the benefit of all the people that are listening. I'm going to make a statement to you that I'm going to say twice because I really want this to sink in. I hope maybe saying it twice will be enough. Much, if not all, of what Jesus has us go through is to reveal himself to us and to teach us about himself so that we can know him better and trust him more. Much, if not all, of what Jesus has us go through is to reveal himself to us and to teach us about himself so that we can know him better and trust him more. Whatever it is you're dealing with, even if it feels like you've been dealing with it over and over and over, it's because God is orchestrating your life to get you to trust him and know him better. Actually, back up. Get you to know him better and then trust him. That's the whole point. And sometimes in revealing things about himself, he's also revealing some things to us about ourselves. And we just need to know that. 
And so God knows so much about us. He already knows how we think and what we're feeling and where we're going. That's why the book of Romans says that the Holy Spirit's already praying in accordance with the will of God. When we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, we don't even know what to pray for. We, we always think that that passage is saying, I'm in this situation. I don't know how to pray right now. Actually, if you study the context of that passage, it's saying God already knows what he's going to walk you through in the days to come. And you don't even know how to pray because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But the Holy Spirit already knows what God's purposes are and what he's taking you through. And he's already praying for you in accordance with the will of God. We've read that passage in Romans and said, I don't know how to pray. Lord, would you help me pray at this moment? And God does. But he says, you still don't understand. I'm way ahead of you. I've already been praying for you along this line. Because I know what my purposes are. Go to John chapter 11. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Most of what is happening is for, the, for those who are listening and those who are around, us included. John chapter 11, look at verses 38 through 42. This is in the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. John 11, verses 38 and following. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man. I love that, by the way. Do you know how this, the scripture says, Mar it doesn't say Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Any, real quick, does anybody want to know why God, God had him write it this way, the sister of the dead man? Exactly. Actually, if you go back and study the passage, it is almost comical how many times it says he's dead. Mary and Martha say, Jesus, he's sick. You better hurry up and get here. And Jesus doesn't move. And then a few days later, uh, they go back and, and Jesus says, let's go back. Let's go now. And, uh, and he says, uh, Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples were like, well, if he's sleeping, that's good. He'll get better. And they're like, and Jesus goes, he's dead. <laughs> then Martha says, the sister of the dead man. He's been there four days. There's this mindset in the Jewish culture that the spirit hovered over the body so many days. But after we get to a certain point, it finally left. He's been there past that point. He's dead. So Martha, the sister of the dead man, says, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prayed out loud, not for anybody's sake, but the people around him. And boy, that prayer, by the way, has been used in, God, in my life by God in many ways. One day I was studying this passage and, and, I, and I, I, God asked me this question. He said, Jim, if I told you to go stand next to a casket and tell that person to get up, what would your prayer be? My prayer would not be, God, I'm glad you heard me. My prayer would be, oh, God, I hope you're hearing me. And he began to show me how much I, if I knew he said it, do I believe that he's spoken? Go ahead. Is that not, I'm going to say it nice and loud, is that not the power that moves mountains? That is the power that moves mountains, is really believing we've heard him. And see, faith is not you doing something and hoping God covers you. Faith is you heard him. You know what his word says, and you then step out in obedience. And there's power in that. Jesus prays out loud. Before he raises Lazarus, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know you always hear me. I just said that for the people around. In other words, when I say this, it's you doing this work through me. 
Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 27 through 30. John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you willing to let God do something in your life? Work through your situation in such a way that his purpose really wasn't for you as much as it was for the people around you? He does do it all the time. My question is, are you willing? You see, most of the time we keep looking at what God's doing in my life. And trust me, he's doing stuff in our lives all the time. But are you willing to go through something for the sake of him using your situation for the people that are watching you? You don't know who's watching. You don't know who's paying attention. But how often have we in the midst of these trials that we go through in this life that the Bible says you will have trouble in this life? You don't know that, right? And none of us say, well, I took a few days off. No, each day has enough trouble of its own. The Bible's really clear that if God had his son learn obedience through suffering, we should expect it in this life. Yet most of us want to live a life with no suffering. And then when suffering does come, we're like, what did I do wrong? How can I get out of this? And what are you willing? If God has a purpose that you might not ever see in this life, that by your faithful response, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I'm just going to trust you that he might be using you and your situation for people that are watching around you that you don't even know. Haven't we seen this already in through our study of Matthew? How the whole woman with the issue of blood for 12 years and this daughter who had died who was 12 years old. God was doing something and you'll see this. He's teaching his disciples. He's speaking to the Jews. He's trying to reveal himself to people that are listening and watching. And I don't know who's watching you and I don't know who's watching me. But are we willing to daily say, I'm going to keep my eyes on you because you're going to do stuff in my life for the people around me and I may not know it. Or are you so focused on yourself that you don't care? I talked to this one individual one time who had claimed to be a Christian and he was going through a struggle and he's like, I just feel like quitting. I go, is, is that how we're supposed to respond as, a, respond as a Christian? This is what he said to me. He said, I'm tired of putting on the Christian face. And I asked him, I said, is your Christianity just a show? And he said, sometimes it feels like it. And I just, people are watching you. Is your Christianity just a show or is it real? And if it's real, don't be surprised if God knows you're going to respond well to this cancer or whatever it is for the glory of God, because there will be people watching and he knows you're going to bring him glory by how you respond. Let's go back to Matthew chapter nine. Once again, we see Jesus tell them not to talk about what he did. What'd they do? Verse 31, but they went away and spread his fame throughout that district. Now, let me clarify something for you. He's not always wanting us never to speak. 
Okay, I don't want you to start building your theology now. Jesus said, don't tell about it. Don't tell about it. No, 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 no. Go with me to real quickly to Mark chapter 5. Uh, put a bookmark in Matthew 9. We'll come right back to it. Go to Mark chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through 20. This is a story of the Jesus healing the man with the legion of demons. In Mark chapter 5, verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus didn't permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So we see here in this instance, Jesus says, no, go tell. But here's where I want you to go tell. The guy's like, I want to tell. I want to get on the road with you. I'm going to be in this traveling preaching ministry and I'm going to tell people about what you did. And Jesus says, actually, I got a plan already for you. And, and I want to send you back to where everybody knew you. Me taking you on the road to tell about what I did and how I rescued you from these legions of demons where no one ever saw that. It's not going to be as powerful as it would be in your situation to go back where everybody knew the old you. It very much so. If you go look, that does tie together quite a bit that the groups all the group of Greeks come to him in John chapter 12. Listen closely. Jesus is not always wanting us not to speak, but there are times for his reasons and his purposes. He wants us to wait until he says to speak so that his plan will be accomplished in his time. Listen, in his harvest field. Does that sound familiar? Go back to Matthew chapter 9. We're jumping to the, all the way to the very end. Verse 37 of our section for tonight. Don't get excited. We're not even close to done. But look at verse 37. Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 9, 37. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We've unfortunately thought God needs our help. We feel like we could do a better job. That's what we say when we come up with strategies to reach our neighborhood. It sounds real good and spiritual. And man, if we could just mobilize, if we could do this, and we come up with a plan to reach the world. Whose harvest field is this? Whose plan is it? And he's working out in his way, in his time. That's going to be very, very clear when we get to next week's study, when we get into chapter 10, when he sends us to 12 apostles out and he says, you can't go here, you can't go there, you can only go here. Oh, and when you go here, here's how you're to do it. I'm going to spend a chunk of our time next week dealing with how to recognize where God's at work in his harvest field. I'm going to teach you how to squeeze and sniff and thump people without getting arrested to find out where they are in the whole process of God doing his work in his harvest field. Folks, have we not already just seen tonight that in progressive revelation, God said way back at the beginning, I got this awesome plan. But he only gave a little glimpse. And then he gives a little glimpse later, so many hundreds of years later. And another little glimpse, so many hundreds of years later. God, what are you waiting on? I, I have a purpose and a plan. And it's in my timing and in my way. And all he wants us to do is to say, Lord, where would you have me go? When would you have me go? Where would you have me speak? When would you have me not speak? We're ready. We're listening. And we're going out as we go. We don't have an agenda. We don't have a plan. We actually walk with him. 
Monday night, I played in a league that I haven't played in in a while. It's a Christian golf league that's been put together where guys from different churches all get together and play on Monday nights at Vieira East. And uh, it's just nine holes. But they invite lost guys to come play, too, because they like golf. And it's a chance to get them intermingled with Christians. And every week you get paired up with somebody different. So nobody plays with their same buddy all the time. And we were done playing our nine-hole league, and then when that was over, because of the way that things are set up at this course, if you want to stay until dark, you can keep playing until we can't see anymore. Of course, I'm one of those guys. I'll do it. But one of the guys that got stayed with us, five of us that stuck around at the end to play until we couldn't play anymore, was named Michael. And he's in his 20s, early 30s at the most. And I'm not kidding you, I have never been, I've been on the golf course a lot and I've heard lots of language. I've never heard language like this. He put words together that I had never heard put together. Oh, I've heard lots of cuss words. He was, he was a scholar. I mean, unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Everything in me wanted to say, that's my Lord you're talking about. I mean, I'm not kidding you. He put some things together with God that I had never seen put together. I thought, you know what? That's even conjugated properly. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but everything in me, and, and it wasn't like he didn't know that this was a Christian league. One of the guys we were playing with is also a pastor in the area. And this guy knows him and calls him preach. Called him preach the whole time. So he knew who we were. And everything in me wanted so bad to stop him and say, please stop doing that. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me. All he said was, I'm working on Michael. And you leave him alone for right now. And you'll actually get in the way of what I'm trying to do if you correct his language. That's going to be important later on in a second. Go ahead. I saw you raise your hand. Mike, him or demons in him? Both. Both. You just can't blame the demons. We're guilty as well. Because if they're there, we invited them in. Oh, it was it was impressive. But God's spirit clearly said, leave him alone. I'm working on my timetable with him and you'll get in the way. Are we even asking? Are we even listening to when he says speak and when he says not speak? Of course, obviously, these people did not listen when he said don't speak. Now, verses 32 through 34, we're not going to study tonight. We're going to, I'm going to bring out one thing from it, but we're not going to study it for this reason. Write this down and you can go look at it later on and it'll get you ready. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32 will cover in great detail what's happening here. I'm going to read this section to you again. Matthew 9, 32 to 34. It says, as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. We're going to break this down in much detail when we get to chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, because Jesus deals with it again, where they accuse him of casting out demons by the prince of demons. And he then answers. And so we're going to deal with it then. But there's one thing I want to pull out of this section before we get to the last section for tonight. And that's this. Simply notice the completely different responses by the people who all saw the same miracle. Jesus cast the demons out of this guy, or the demon out of this guy, and he starts to speak. Some people are like, we've never seen anything like this. Others are like, he's doing this because he's in power with Satan. Stop thinking that you have influence on whether people believe or not. 
I'm going to say it to you again, and I'm going to prove to you that you do. Stop thinking that you have any influence on whether or not somebody believes or not. Paul said, if what I say makes sense to you, God's opened your eyes. If what I say is confusing to you, Satan's blinded your eyes. He didn't think it had anything to do with him. But let me prove to you that you actually think you have some influence on whether or not someone else would believe. And I want you to raise your hands if you, if you can answer this correctly. All right. Have you ever, show of hands here in this room, how many of you have ever thought to yourself that somebody else would do a better job than you in sharing the gospel with a certain individual? We all have, myself included. That because you think that it's tied to you. It's not. Let me prove it to you again from Scripture. Go to Matthew chapter 28. Sorry, Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, look at verses 17 through 24. Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 24. Paul's now in Rome. It says in verse 17, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. By the way, who's the hope of Israel? Jesus. And then when he said the hope of Israel, they, they knew who he was talking about, the Messiah. Of course, they didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. And they said to him, these Jewish Jews in Rome, they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, the way, Christianity, we know that everywhere it's spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Here's a room full of Jews and he shares with them the gospel. Some believed and some didn't. He said the same thing to everybody. And the response of some was they believed, and the response of others were, no. Folks, stop thinking that you have any influence on whether or not they're going to believe in that sense of how you word it. Just when he says speak, speak. If he says don't, don't. Why? Because it's his harvest field. Pray God to put people in his harvest field in his way, in his time, and believe that God will do that. And we're going to deal with that in much more detail next week. I can't wait till next week. We're going to have so much fun. I'm going to walk you through the scriptures to show you how to go into his harvest field as a harvester. I'm going to change the setting in the room tomorrow, I mean, next week. I'm going to change the setting, and I'm going to be an owner of an apple orchard. And you all are going to be my pickers. But I'm not sending you out into my apple orchard to go pick my apples until I train you how to recognize what a ripe apple looks like. Right. Otherwise, you'll do damage to my crop. That's what we're going to do next week. It's going to be fun. You guys are going to miss it because you're going to be on your trip. But you'll listen to it. Very good. Thank you very much for for what you do, Chris. Let's close. Yeah. Let's close this, though, with Matthew chapter nine, verses thirty five to thirty seven. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 37. 
And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, let me stop for a second. How many of you, again, show of hands, how many of you have ever read this passage and that when you hear God say the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, you've automatically assumed it was because we don't have enough people willing to go out. Correct? Isn't that how we read it? That's how it's preached. That's how we read it. There's a big harvest field out there, but there's not enough people willing to go out. Isn't that how we read it? Oh, hang on for a second. Don't you remember from our study earlier that wides the path that goes to destruction and many go that way and that narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And what? Few there be that find it. So actually, we shouldn't be surprised that there are few laborers. It's not because there's not enough people going out. It's because God's plan is to accomplish his purpose with few. There can't be many, many laborers going out when there's only going to be few that believe in the first place. Do you see the difference? The laborers are few, but that's okay. They're supposed to be few. We've read it that it's a bad thing that they're few. No, they're supposed to be few. There's only a few of us that really get it. We need to be the ones who are trained to go out into the harvest field and God can accomplish his harvest in a plentiful harvest field with even few laborers. Stop reading it as we're not doing enough and put your eyes on a big God. Do you see it? He's able to do amazing things in a huge harvest field with just a few workers. By the way, doesn't that line up with how we see the stories in the Bible? Gideon, I'm going to use you to defeat the Midianites. And oh, by the way, there's more Midianites than you can count. Oh, Gideon rounds up 32,000. God says, you got too many. He knocks it down to, to 10,000 and then down to 300. And God accomplished his purpose with few laborers. Folks, I hope you hear me tonight. This is actually something God showed me just tonight. Tuesday night didn't get this. I, tonight, as I was preaching this, God opened my eyes to this. And I'm like, I'm like giddy. I can't wait to go share it with some other preacher friends of mine. We've read it as that's a bad thing. No, that's how God works. That's how God works with the few. Go ahead, Jim. Just one quick thing. Most people don't realize that uh, God is sovereign and he's the one that made the choice. I also <laughs> Exactly, exactly. If he's called you, you're, he's going to be the one doing it through you. Go ahead. If there's a lot, then, they, then God doesn't get the glory. You got it. Man, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I can't finish this study fast enough to go start telling people. I just have never seen that before. But it's tonight that God opened my eyes to this. The few is not a bad thing. That's God's glory. I think we tend to read verse 38, send out more laborers. Yep. It doesn't say more laborers. It doesn't say more laborers. It's just send out laborers. Yeah. And it's supposed to be few because there's only few that enter and God does his work with few. I want to be one of those few. Why did Jesus go out regularly to the synagogues? Because God came first to the Jews. We see that he was preaching. Very good. Did you hear the answer? Because he was sent first to the Jews. 
We're not going to have you take the time to go there, but if in Matthew, go to study Matthew 15, you'll see that woman in Tyre and Sidon, and she calls out to him, and Jesus says, he doesn't say anything, and then the disciples say, she's driving us crazy, and he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, again, he deals with their situation. We'll deal with that next week. I'm going to use that story to teach you how to recognize where God's at work. I'm going to teach you that next week. So the Matthew 15 story with that woman who had the daughter who had a demon, that's going to be one of our greatest passages to illustrate how to recognize where God's at work. But he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember our study? We've been looking, go where God tells you to go, when he tells you to go, and only to where he tells you to go, and only speak when he tells you to speak. In the same way, Jesus did the same thing. John chapter 5, verse 19, the son only does what the father tells him to do. And as you look at Luke chapter 4, you'd see in verse 16 that Jesus went into the synagogue when he went into his hometown, as was his custom, why he was sent by the father to the Jews. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Does anyone know the rest of it? To the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Jesus himself lived this way. He went wherever the Father told him to go and only talked to whom the Father told him to talk to. The last thing we're going to deal with tonight as we close is this. Once again, we see Jesus has compassion on the people. Why? Look at according to the passage. Why does he have compassion on them? He sees them as what? Lost sheep. And he sees them as harassed and helpless. I'm going to ask you a question in closing. Do you see the lost world in this way? If not, you don't have the love of Jesus in your heart if you don't see the world as he does. Too often Christians, and I'm going to say Christians in quotes, have been known for looking at the lost world and judging them. And how can they do that? I can't believe Exactly. They're doing the best they can. They're doing the best they can. Years ago, a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, had two girlfriends that were her age. They were a trio. And one of her girlfriends actually killed the other girlfriend. Murdered her. I mean, planned it, plotted it, killed her. She's in jail for the rest of her life. These are three ladies that were tight. And this lady that I know, she was wrecked, I mean, as you might be, wrecked by this. I mean, it's like they were buddies. And she was struggling with the fact that she loved this girl that did the murder, but at the same time, she did this murder to their friend. And as I sat down with that lady who was wrestling with it, I said, the fact that you have a problem with what she's done is proof that there's a God. She goes, what do you mean? I go, um, if the world's attitude of the survival of the fittest is, is the way it is. What's the big deal then? I mean, you watch the animal shows, the lion's going to kill the zebra, and that's just the way it is. If that's how it is in this world, what's the big deal that she killed her over an issue? Survival of the fittest. And this lady began to weep, and she said, there is a God then. There has to be, because this isn't right. And God took something like that to begin to open her eyes. Folks, let me just say something to you. We need to see the world as Jesus does. While he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yet at the same time as they're stoning Stephen, as he's falling down to his death, being killed by the rocks, he says, Father, don't hold this against them. How many of us have thought, man, I can't wait till the world gets theirs. If you do, you don't have the heart of the Father. I'm going to close tonight with something that's pretty powerful, I think, and it's not from me. It's from Erwin Lutzer's book, 
Christ from the cross. Erwin Lutzer, pastor at Moody Church in Chicago for many years. And he's on the radio a lot. And a neat guy. I've actually met him when I was pastor in Chicago. And he does one of the best Billy Graham impersonations you've ever heard in your life. It's hilarious. But in his book, Christ from the Cross, he brings out in this chapter on Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He brings out that in the Greek, it actually reads that he didn't say it one time like we've all thought. But he was repeating it over and over and over, probably throughout the whole crucifixion. Imagine now what's going on. Jesus is there laying him down on the cross with saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he's praying this prayer out loud over and over and over as they stand him up, as they're going through all this. And all of a sudden, it makes a ton more sense that as you study the Gospels, you see that both thieves were making fun of him. Both were mocking him. But by the end of the time on the cross, one of them had changed his mind. And he says, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Why? Because Jesus' heart for him and them was continually being poured out. Ask God to not have you just remember, oh yeah, I gotta see him like, no, no. Ask God to give you that, Father, they don't know what they're doing. 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 Ask him to give that heart to you where you see it perpetually. And when that happens, you'll be patient when you're cut off. You'll be patient when someone tries to beat you to the, the line of the grocery store. You'll be patient because you'll be perpetually walking with that prayer. They don't know. They're doing the best they can. They're harassed. They're helpless. That guy, Michael, he's, he's hurting. It's obvious. There's stuff going on in his life that's causing him to act like that. Slam his club down. Say things that he would say. My prayer is that you and I would have God give us his heart for the people around us. Oh, and then you'll speak when he says speak. And you won't when he says not. But you'll pray that the Lord will put harvest workers in his harvest field. I love you. Can't wait till next week. Come back next week. Ready to pick apples.